Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Starship Sofa. This is Oral Delights, show number 100. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hello and welcome to this monumental day. I am your host, Tony C. Smith, and a very happy guy indeed. We've reached 100 shows. Hello, Ray Sizemore here. If you recognize the name, it's probably as a reader here at Starship Sofa and elsewhere over the past year or so. As Arl Delight's 100 approached, I got to thinking how much I appreciate the work Tony puts into the Starship Sofa. Seriously, Producing a weekly audio program, much less two, is a lot of work. And even the most successful podcasts generate only minimal revenue via sponsorships and donations. Starship Sofa is plainly a labor of love and not a money-making venture. At least, not yet. Fingers crossed, Tony. So anyway, I was feeling all appreciative, and I thought, hey, why don't I send off a little audio congratulations slash thanks for the 100th episode? Then it occurred to me that if I was grateful, others on the sofa and elsewhere in the potosphere might feel the same way. As it turns out, they did. So, congratulations on 100 episodes, Tony, from all of us. This is Matthew Sanborn-Smith saying thank you, Tony, for the hundreds of hours of happiness your passion and drive have brought to thousands of listeners. You are truly the thruster beneath our curry-stained cushions. Hello, Tony. This is Amy H. Sturgis, and I just wanted to say congratulations on 100 episodes. Well done, my good sir. A toast from Brazil on 100 episodes. Congratulations. Tony, hi, Larry Santoro here. I've got a kind of late-blooming career, and because of that, there are just a few people who stand out, and I'm not going to mention any of them but you. Uh, got to say, you've nudged me. I've learned from you. You've given me a literal voice in other parts of the world, and here we are, two years on. You, the starship, the community you build just goes rolling on, gathering people, words, ideas, voices, friendships, bonds. Anyway, Tony, thanks for the fun. Thanks for opening up whole new vistas for me, and and congratulations on surviving the first two years. Keep at it. We need it. We need you. Have a good anniversary. Hi, Tony. This is Grant. I've just dug myself out of the sofa slush to say congratulations on 100. This is Norm Sherman from the Drabblecast saying, Happy 100th episode, Tony. May Starship Sofa's bloated egg sack spawn hundreds more. Hello, Tony. It's Jim Campanella, narrator and science and guru extraordinaire. Or so they tell me. Like everyone else, I'm offering my congratulations on your 100th Starship Sofa Oral Delights episode. Well done, man. It's quite an accomplishment. I've enjoyed being with you since almost the beginning, and hope to be part of the sofa when you celebrate your 200th episode, if you'll let me. 
Cheers. Hi, Tony. This is Julie from Forgotten Classics. Congratulations on episode 100. I'm so curious to see what happens next. Well done, sir. And thank you so much. Hello, this is Jeremy Talbert, editor of Escape Pod, an occasional guest of Starship Sofa's Sofanauts. Congratulations on your 100th episode, Tony. Uh, sometimes it may seem like I'm your arch nemesis when it comes to getting stories from certain authors, but I wish you luck and I look forward to hearing your 200th episode. Hey, Tony, Diane here. Magnus, almost baby Maury, and I would like to congratulate you and the good Starship Sofa on her 100th oral delightful voyage. We have no doubt you can keep her sailing for at least another 100. Hey, Tony, this is Big Anklevich. And Rish Outfield from the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine. Congratulations on your 100th episode. That's amazing stuff, man. When 100 episodes we reach, look as good we will not. <laughs> Congrats, Tony. See you later, man. That fell into my inbox a couple of days ago, and I had a sneaky feeling it was going to come because young Miss Kate Baker let it slip that there was something happening and everyone was getting together and sending over this little montage of, you know, appreciation for show 100. So everyone, Ray, you know what I mean? What a star putting that together. It's fantastic. Kate, hi. Caught you. <laughs> that was amazing. You know what I mean? That, like I say, I knew it was coming. I knew something was coming. But then when Rhea kind of sent it over, you know what I mean? And I just played it one, I think it was as soon as I got it, and I was just kind of by myself in the house. And honestly, you know what I mean? The hairs on the back of my neck got up, and what an amazing thing. Thank you, everyone. Honestly, thank you so much. So we are here, show number 100 of Oral Delights. That's, to me, it's a, you know what I mean? If you see someone out and out in a couple of days' time or today or any time, he's a guy, he's probably six foot two and he's a happy chap, right? And he looks, you know, you, you look at him and you think, you know, he looks he looks a happy chap. Guess what? I am happier. You will not meet a happier guy than me today. I have been buzzing for, for a couple of weeks now, you know. Show 100 was coming along and, you know, I'd kind of been planning it and everything. And then didn't I get that email from D? And it's just took me into the kind of stratosphere of happiness. Do you know what I mean? What a kind of a gift D, you know, did just getting in touch with us and getting everything sorted out. So I've got a little bit of an announcement to make. Starship Sofa Stories Volume 1 is officially on sale at her new website, which is starshipsofa.com slash anthology. Or you can just go over Starship Sofa and take a link from there. What can I say? But, you know, we're here as well to kind of celebrate Starship Sofa, like, oral delights, reaching 100th show, you know what I mean? I think that's kind of marvellous. And what I kind of like about it, you know, is you've been there from, you know, some people have been there from the very beginning, you know, God help you stand up now, you need a medal, you know what I mean? You need therapy and a medal. But it's it's been like a kind of weird journey. Do you know what, like, the whole Starship Sofa, it's a strange thing because even now, you know, like, see, I'm, I'm here now, show 100, I'm talking to myself. Do you know what I mean? I'm talking to myself in a room, not a soul here, and that's, it's how it's 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 kind of evolved, you know what I mean? It's like a, a single thing, and I know you are all out there, but it's a bizarre thing I'm just talking to myself not a soul around for probably a couple of miles to be quite honest where I am at the minute so there you go 
you know, I want to kind of mention the kind of the journey up to kind of show one hundred of Oral Delights, and you know, I don't even know how many shows I've done since the very beginning. Do you know what I mean? Since two thousand and six, when we started in June. I haven't got a clue. If anyone wants to tell us, because honestly, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> Some of the, I think I've got all the shows on my hard disk backed up. <laughs> I'm not really, <laughs> probably haven't, you know. That's a bloody. That's what I'm like. Someone, I'm kind of probably the the Ronnie Reagan Bush. Do you know what I mean? Cardboard cutout kind of figure on a on a show. Do you know what I mean? I haven't got a clue. It's everyone else that kind of helps us. Do you know what I mean? Kind of gets we here, but like I say. I don't know how many shows we've done to get to this kind of 100th of Oral Delights, but that was a big turning point for me when I kind of started to do it by myself. You know, when kind of Kieran, most of you know when we first started, Kieran O'Carroll was joined with us and we used to do the shows where we used to look in depth into, you know, a writer, a science fiction writer. And then Kieran left. And I haven't seen Kieran for a while. Do you know, he lives down in London. And I have to see him with kind of my physical friends. And now all scattered everywhere. You know, I, I don't get a chance to see them. So I took over the kind of reins of Starships over by myself. And I was doing a couple of shows, you know, like by myself, you know, just having a go. And then didn't I go, and, and a lot of you know this, I fell at work. I knocked myself out, you know. <laughs> Actually, I fell on the concrete. I, I got up from the office inside like a building. I got up quick, I think, from a chair, and I went to the door, which is only about 10 foot away. And that's the last I can remember. And I woke up, and I, here, I don't know how long I was lying there for, a pool of blood. My eye was off, horrible. But here, didn't I have like a little kind of bleed on the brain and two, like a fractured skull in two places? And that was like a say, a strange thing. and... Then I started, if everyone remembers, I got anxiety after all that, you know, and all that kind of calmed down. I think that brought on anxiety. But still in the background, Starship Sova was there. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not joking when I say this, helping us out. Do you know what I mean? The best bit of therapy I can have is to sit down and just, it seems as if I go into some sort of trance and I just keep on talking and talking and talking. But I cannot describe how good having Starship Sova here and communicating with everyone, putting out science fiction. Hand on heart, I think that got me over, you know, it's, it's anxiety, no problem at all. You know, not to say I'm over it totally, but, you know, it's a damn sight easier living with it now than when I, kind of, when I very first had it young, young years ago. But like I say, Starship Sova has been there. And then now, you know, I'm just kind of plodded on and just getting things out and getting things out. And... It's built up into, you know, I'm quite proud to say now probably the second biggest science fiction literature podcast out there. Do you know? And I'm chuffed to bits with that. You know, and like you see, you look at Escape Pod and that's, you know, they're the kind of leaders in it. But I'm so proud of what Starship Sova has done because I think Starship Sova is a million miles different from Escape Pod. And that's what, you know, I've always wanted to kind of set out that. I knew, I knew you know, everyone kind of... Skatepod does the stories and, you know, the podcast will all do the stories. But I wanted to make something just slightly different or very much different, have its own you know, identity and have its own brand. And I wanted to kind of bring in, every, you know, I wanted help. I certainly couldn't have done this without everybody's help. You know, it's been just, that's the, I think the beauty of like Starship Sova, 
it's an open house, you know, come in and help us. <laughs> please, <laughs> sometimes, please, you know, this cardboard cutout kind of sometimes going to do a couple of things. And I think that's what kind of made, I think, personally, Starship Sova is like the quality of people that's been coming on board and helping out. And there's still quality out there that hasn't even gotten in touch with us yet. So, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's, a, you know, that's a good reason to knock on my door. And this is this 100th show, you know what I mean, and celebrating Starship Sova with this anthology coming out. That's a prime example. D, getting in touch with us. You know, a simple email. I've counted the letters, the words, you know what I mean? There's about... 50 words in his email, and it's just made the show into what it's going to be, you know, a fantastic show. So, Starship Sofa's Oral Delights, 100. Everybody, welcome. Now, we have a special show, as, as you can guess, lined up today. I have a load of stories, and in between them stories, I'm going to just give you the kind of rundown of how the kind of the annual or how the, the anthology has been put together, what's in it, you know, how it's going to be, the price and structure, thoughts and dreams on future ones, the whole lot. So I'll tell you what, I can't actually tell you what segment's going in what yet, because it's honestly recorded, it's basically ad-lib. Do you know what I mean? I haven't got, well, I've got notes for which writers have got a story there. I've got eight stories, and this is how professional I am. <laughs> eight stories. I'm sure I might have played one of them. You know what I mean? I hope to God I haven't, but bloody hell, that's, that's the professionalism. So eight stories, and in between them, I'll just have a little chat about things on, you know, the, the anthology, how, how it comes about and things like that. So the first story we have is by Gwyneth Jones and it's End of Oil. Gwyneth Jones gave Starship Sova, very kind, gave Starship Sova one of her stories a while ago. It is narrated by Corey Samuel. Corey works, or actually does a lot of work for LibriVox over there, .org. And Corey has her own site, which will be a, a link on the front of the website. So Starship Sova and her oral delights on show 100 is very proud to present. The End of Oil by Gwyneth Jones in Three Acts Paper Tiger Sunita had the choice of watching TV or having the central heating on. It was a cold and dark November evening, but she chose the TV and pedalled away furiously on the power-gen bike. She wanted to know what was happening in North London. All she could find was the President of the United States facing another gruelling interview. Mr. President, the writing's been on the wall for oil for decades, in letters a mile high. You went on squeezing the barrel, and now we're in that worst-case, rapid-decline scenario. What's your answer to the social collapse that some are calling inevitable? The end of oil is a paper tiger, shouted Sunita's husband. Meant to scare us. There's plenty of alternative fuels. He was at their designer dining table, juggling clothing coupons. Polyesters and polymers are petroleum-based, far too expensive. So you think you'll buy cotton. But the cotton needs expensive irrigation, which also uses insanely expensive power. Hence these bloody coupons. Well, I am scared, muttered Sunita, through a menacing burst of ordnance fire. 
the President had changed the subject and started talking about the oil wars, which seemed to be surviving an almost complete lack of oil. So now there was half a screen of war zone footage on the TV and a leap in volume. Stupid, stupid, how stupid do they think we are? panted Sunita. She tried again to get hold of her son. She'd heard about the awful fuel riots at Brent this morning and thanked God none of her family could be there. But Jatty had phoned two hours ago to say he and Sally were right in the middle of it. They'd heard, like everyone else, that there was a chance of getting petrol rations. A million people, he'd shouted down the phone. Then something about guns and it's really frightening, mum. And since then, his phone had been dead. Suddenly, she couldn't pedal any more. It's like the end of the world, she whispered. Ravi left his figure juggling, and they stared at the blank face of their energy gobbling flat screen TV. Sunita's husband went to the kitchen and came back with a cold chisel and a claw hammer. Too little, too late, she thought, as they smashed it. The Phylloxera Virus But you see, it wasn't the end of the world, Mum, said Jatty. Ten years on from the Brent riots, which had left five hundred dead, Jatty and Sally were moving into a new flat on Riverside Walk with the latest flood proofing. Both sets of parents had come along to help out. It's like the Phylloxera virus, continued Jatty. In the 1870s, the Phylloxera virus destroyed all the vines in France, but they found resistant strains. And the crisis was over. Wine is wine, energy is energy. We have H power and biomass. We have solar power, methanol, ethanol. These flats are so energy efficient, we'll be selling power to the grid most of the year. What are we missing? Long haul air travel? He shuddered. I don't think so. You don't even have your own car, muttered Sunita. Who needs a car? demanded Sally. That's just old fashioned. We have modern luxuries and a sustainable energy economy. We are having it all, remarked Ravi, pouring a glass of beer from the jug. You don't get beer in cans anymore. It's uneconomic. Including the disaster stories. The canola oil fields of rape are almost as polluting as a black gold used to be. The huge plantations for cellulose plastics are ruining the environment. And even if mass air travels over, Soy-based aviation fuel is no better than the old stuff for global warming. They say the brown coal they use for power in the USA and China is so dirty it's causing a kind of nuclear winter effect, added Sally's dad, Ronald, cheerfully. Sunita looked out of the window at the river that lapped the concrete skirts of Chelsea Wharf higher every year. It's going to start again, she thought. The riots and the deaths, the cold and the darkness. Changing one source of energy for another is no solution. We need something more, something we can't see. The future is another country. Sunita moved into sheltered accommodation after her husband died. Her great granddaughter Sophia took her out for the day, and they went for a drive in the country. It was September. They passed the fields where Sophia's physical body was at work, harvesting the apples. The virtual Sophia, who had come to visit Grandma, directed the little disposable car by wireless nerve impulses, 
while the young woman sat there like a living ghost, the curlian field around her sparkling gently, her virtual skin glowing green with the chlorophyll the real Sophia had had implanted. This is all too strange for me, complained the old woman. It's altogether too much. And why can't you come and see me on your real day off, young lady? This is really me, said Sophia patiently. I'm here, and I'm picking apples. Grandma, every leap forward in human civilization seemed fantastical before it happened. You know, horseless carriages, ships with wings. This is the same. No one thinks anything of the end of oil nowadays. It truly wasn't important. Much more exciting things were beginning in embryo in the early twenty-first century. The petroleum age was just a phase we were going through. There you go. Thank you, Gwyneth. Fantastic little story. A lovely little story, to be quite honest. And Corey, what a great little narration. Thank you so much. So, Starship Sova's. So, the Starship Sova's Stories, Volume 1, is on sale. Again, I'll give you a little list of who's in there so you, you get it. And I mentioned this last week, you know what I mean? So I'm kind of just covering ground, but it's always nice to kind of, you know, plug your writers. Jeffrey Ford, Ken McLeod, Gord Seller, Ken Schulz, Michael Bishop, Elizabeth Bear, Michael Moorcock, Spider Robinson, Peter Watts, our good friend, Lauren Santuru, Gene Wolfe, Alistair Reynolds, Ruth Nesfold, Benjamin Rosebaum, and Joe R. Lansdale. What a lineup. Do you know what I mean? That, again, hairs on the back of my neck, just to, getting that kind of lineup there. And, you know what I mean? I've, I've honestly got to say a big thank you to all them writers. They've been, I suppose, instrumental in building Starship so far, but been so kind. Letting straight away, letting get these stories up, you know, and get them out there for everyone. Do you know what I mean? But then letting us put them in this anthology, you know, I'm actually taking their, you know, this is the kind of the hard cash. This is where they earn their money. And they're still, they've still given, do you know what I mean? Given these stories to us, you know, just to kind of help Starship Sova, just to put a bit funds in their pocket and just make sure this kind of production, this kind of, technology to get science fiction out there just keeps going and i think it is a little bit you know this is i keep i'm starting to get this kind of these words in my head now and they don't leave us you know i think this is the kind of the second gold rush of science fiction that kind of golden age of science fiction i think this is the kind of second stage of it where we've got the likes of podcasts where we can put out science fiction where we can reach that audience that kind of might have read science fiction when we were younger drifted away now, you know, there's this technology there now where you can listen to us in the bath, for God's sake, on, you know what I mean, in bed next to your wife, you listen to me talk. <laughs> what a thought. But I think it is, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's rekindled. I, I get numerous emails from people saying, do you know what I mean? I used to like, I used to read like loads of science fiction all the time. And for some reason, you know, and to say with me, you know, I used to read it, was mad on, you know, like mad, mad, mad on just I could not get enough of it at one time. Do you know what I mean? And now I'm a kind of bit of a strange one because I didn't even start reading till I was 20-odd. But, you know, it does, you do kind of things, I don't know what happens, but things just drift away from you. And then it came back and, wow, it came back with such like a force. You know, and, and it, it is thanks to podcasting and thanks to the iPod. Do you know what I mean? So I think we're all kind of, 
lucky at this moment that we are in this, you know, this kind of second golden age of science fiction. And 100 years down the line, you know, that I'm sure there'll be someone, you know, saying, oh, in the kind of doing this exact kind of show about Starship Sova as what I did about the writers. Do you know what I mean? Oh, in the kind of early 2005 or whatever, there was, you know, this thing called podcast. And now this is where that'll happen. Do you know what I mean? And I'm so proud to be a part of this now. Do you know what I mean? And so proud that everyone's kind of here helping us. You know what I mean? It's an amazing time. And I think what's going to make it more is, you know, like the, the book. Do you know what I mean? That is something tremendous. But let's not forget writers and stories. That's why we're here. That's why kind of Starship Sofa's built up to what it is because of the writers. Next up is Joe R. Lansdale. And this little story is called Bob the Dinosaur Goes to Disneyland. And like I say, I put a link on the Joe's site. He's been very kind. Joe is one of the ones on the writers that's personally give us a story to put in the volume. You know, I can't thank the guy enough, to be quite honest. He's been amazing. It is narrated by David Marsden Smith. David Marsden Smith, I'll give you a little kind of few tags that been, he's been linked to. He has had a chip shop in the Lake District. He's had a restaurant in Spain. He's had a taverna in Spain. He's had bars in Benidorm in Spain. He's lived on a farm commune up in Olsen in the northeast of England. He has hitchhiked to Monte Carlo on a number of times for charity and won each time. When he was younger, he raced alongside trains dressed up as Billy the Kid. On real horses, and pretending to rob these moving trains on the 125 to Newcastle. Most importantly, though, this narrator is my dad. Bob the Dinosaur Goes to Disneyland, a story by Joe Lansdale. For a birthday present, Fred's wife Karen bought him a plastic inflatable dinosaur, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It was in a cardboard box. Fred thanked her and took the dinosaur downstairs to his study, took it out of the box and spent twenty minutes taking deep breaths and blowing air into it. When a dinosaur was inflated, he sat in front of his bookshelves and, as a joke, got a mousier hat he had bought in Disneyland three years before, put it on the dinosaur's head and named him Bob. Immediately Bob wanted to go to Disneyland. There was no stuffing the ambition. He talked about it night and day, and he got so the study was no place to visit, because Bob would become most unpleasant on the matter. He scrounged around downstairs at night, pacing the floor, singing the Mouseketeer theme loud and long, waking up Fred and Karen, and when Fred would go downstairs and reason with Bob, Bob wouldn't listen. He wouldn't have a minute's worth of it. No, sir. He, by golly, wanted to go to Disneyland. Fred said to Karen, you should have bought me a brontosaurus, or maybe a stegosaurus. I have a feeling they'd have been easy to reason with. Bob kept it up night and day. Disneyland. Disneyland. I want to go to Disneyland. I want to see Mickey. I want to see Donald. It was like some kind of mantra. Bob said it so much. He even found some old brochures on Disneyland that Fred had stored in his closet. Bob spread them out on the floor lay down near them and studied the pictures and wagged his great tail and looked very wistful. Disneyland, he would whisper. I want to go to Disneyland. And when he wasn't talking about it, he was mooning. He'd come up to breakfast and sit in two chairs at the table, 
stare blankly into the syrup on his pancakes, possibly visualising the Matterhorn ride or Sleeping Beauty's castle. It got so it was painful to see, and Bob got mean. He chased the neighbours' dogs and tore open garbage sacks, fought with the kids on the bus, argued with his teachers, and took up slovenly habits, like throwing his used Kleenex on the floor of the study. There was no living with that dinosaur. Finally, Fred had had enough, and one morning at breakfast, while Bob was staring into his pancakes, moving his fork through them lazily, and not really trying to eat them, and Fred had noticed that Bob had lost weight and looked as if he needed some air, Fred said, Bob, we've decided you can go to Disneyland. What said Bob, jerking his head up so fast, his mouse hat flew off, and his fork scraped across his plate with a sound like a fingernail on a blackboard. Really? Yes, but you must wait until school is out for the summer, and you really have to act better. Oh, I will, I will, said Bob. Well now, Bob was one happy dinosaur. He quit throwing Kleenex down, bothering the dogs and the kids on the bus and his teachers, and in fact became a model citizen. His school grades even picked up. Finally, the big day came, and Fred and Karen bought Bob a suit of clothes and a nice John Deere cap, but Bob would have nothing to do with the new dudes. He wore his mousier hat and a sweatshirt he had bought at Goodwill's with a faded picture of Mickey Mouse on it, with the word Disneyland inscribed above it. He even insisted on carrying a battered Disney lunchbox he'd picked up at the Salvation Army, but other than that he was very cooperative. Fred gave Bob plenty of money, and Karen gave him some tips on how to eat a balanced meal daily, and then they drove him to the airport in the back of the pickup. Bob was so excited he could hardly sit still in the airport lounge, and when his seat section was called, he gave Fred and Karen quick kisses, pushed in front of an old lady, and darted onto the plane. As the plane lifted into the sky, heading for California and Disneyland, Karen said, He's so happy. Do you think he'll be all right by himself? He's very mature, Fred said. He's got his hotel arrangements, plenty of money, a snack in his lunchbox, and lots of common sense. He'll be all right. At the end of the week, when it was time for Bob to return, Fred and Karen were not available to pick him up at the airport. They'd made arrangements with their next-door neighbour, Sally, to do the job for them. When they got home, they could hear Bob playing the stereo in the study, and they went down to see him. The music was loud and heavy metal, and Bob had never listened to that sort of thing before. The room smelled of smoke and not cigarettes. Bob was lying on the floor reading, and at first Fred and Karen thought it was Disney brochures, but they saw these stuffed into the trash can by the door. Bob was looking at a girly magazine, with a reefer hanging out the side of his mouth. Fred looked at Karen, and Karen was clearly shaken. Bob, Fred said. Yeah, Bob said, looking up from the fold-out, and his tone was surly. Did you enjoy Disneyland? Bob carefully took the reefer out of his mouth, thumped the ash on the carpet. There was the faintest impression of tears in his eyes. He stood up, tossed the reefer onto the floor, and ground it into the carpet with his foot. Did you see Mickey Mouse, Karen asked. Shit, Bob said. There wasn't any goddamn mouse. Just some guy in a suit, 
Same with a duck. And with that, Bob stalked off into the bathroom, slammed the door, and they couldn't get him out of there for the rest of the day. There you go. Joe or Lansdale, thank you so much. Dad, you are a star. <laughs> I'm not joking. What's that story? Six minutes long? It was nearly 46 minutes long when he's finished swearing. I think can I get what? Oh, what? I'm he laughed. If you notice, I couldn't cut one of the laughs out. He laughed. He would keep on laughing when he was recording and then swearing. I and thing, and just leave it like that. I'm saying, I can't leave it like that, Dad, man. Many people are listening to the story. Oh, <laughs> it was, it recorded 45 minutes long. It probably took us three hours to get that bloody edited down. But I think worth every minute. Dad, you are a star. Thank you so much. So the anthology, first one, volume one. There is going to be... Two books or two sales points, you know what I mean? Two editions, that's probably at once for a better word. There is going to be deluxe edition. This one's going to be priced at $14.99. This one, price at $14.99, I will start there. Price at $14.99. £5 of that is going to be profit, pure profit for Starship Sofa. The rest goes on printing costs, which it actually, that one, the deluxe edition, is it's something like £9 something that's, it even costs before Lulu take their cut. That's how much it costs for just actually print up the book. Then Lulu take their cut and Starship Sofa gets a roundabout. Well, I can't like finger on the exact figure, but it's between four and five pound, which is like pure profit. So if you buy that one, what you will get there, you'll get the, this is actually the original book and you live and learn when we kind of do these, you know, kind of deep got in touch with us. We decided to do it, or he kind of advised, you know, A5, kind of booklet size. When we're getting it all done, we realized it was going to be, there was going to be two different issues because we put that book up into Lulu, and that's the price it came up. And I always wanted, like, a kind of a, a paperback price book, you know what I mean? And it came up at, at like, £9, and then it was going to be, like, say, the price would you add my kind of cut on it. And it was up to that kind of deluxe Price, you know, $14.99. And then I kind of told D, I says, oh, D, that's, something's got to be done. So we decided to make another one. Now, bear in mind, this is not just a case of <laughs> which is what I thought. D, can you just shrink that down into like a paperback size PDF and then upload it? Give you half an hour, bring us back, you know what I mean? And then we'll sort that out. Oh, <laughs> doesn't. Doesn't work like that apparently. Apparently, every page took D about an hour to kind of set and kind of get it sorted. So, hundred and bloody seventy odd pages, hundred and eighty pages nearly. Imagine the work that's went in. Unreal. Do you know what I mean? So, we have two books: the fourteen ninety nine version, which is like they say the, the deluxe one. Now, this one will be. I'm trying to picture it because I haven't actually got a copy yet, but you know the kind of paper, and it's paperback, A5, but it's, you know, the kind of white cookery books, you know, the paper that's in, like, say, a cookery book that's got kind of colour images on and everything like that. Well, that's the kind of quality paper. It's like kind of top quality paper, and it's the only one that I could actually use for the A5 size. So that's the deluxe one. Then there is the kind of the paperback version, and that's just kind of, an, I guess, a normal paperback kind of size book. 
and that's priced at eight ninety nine. And again, five pound of that is pure profit for Starship so far. So every, think of it like that. Every t- if, every time you buy one, <laughs> just buy one. Five pound of it, it's it's going to keep kind of Starship so far going. And that's actually it's a really it's a much better deal than. I guess what the the writers get, you know, when you kind of, you know, you slave away for a year like that and you give your book up, you know, you get this nice big handsome reward when you go through a big publisher. But in terms of kind of sales and volumes and that, I don't think they get half as much as what, you know, you're able to kind of create with this. But doing this, you know, we are our own publishers and that's quite a first as well, you know, going through... Just doing it with sales, and I say, I have not got one clue as being like an editor. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of the, the label I've got. It's everything's new to us, you know, and we've been like in the learning as we go on. You know, like I say, we got this A5 edition done and dusted at the weekend three days ago, you know what I mean? And it was kind of one of the things where, phew, it's finished, you know what I mean? And I de uploaded it. Last probably couple of emails, that was probably it, and we'd have the weekend finished and, you know, ready for the show Wednesday. That's when came the price, you know, and the penny dropped that. That's not going to work out right. You know, we need a cheaper version as well. And then when I found out the actual time it was going to take D, so D, you're a star. Next story. It is Two Dreams on Trains by Elizabeth Bear, narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. Now, I'm guessing, Amy, I've had this one probably longer than any one of your stories, but it's a fantastic story, and I'm glad, so glad I've kind of been hanging on to some of these stories, and it's all, like, kind of wrapped in on this show 100, you know, kind of to use them up. And again, Elizabeth Bear has been instrumental, I think, in kind of building Starship Sova's audience and the quality of our stories. You know what I mean? This writer is at the top of our game, you know, winning awards left, right and centre and able to put out the amount of volume of work she's doing. Quality science fiction, do you know what I mean? It's amazing. And like I say, I can't thank her enough. So, Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. Two Dreams on Trains by Elizabeth Baer Narrated by Amy H. Sturgis The needle wore a path of dye and scab round and round Patience's left ring finger. Sweltering heat adhered her to the mold-scarred chair. The hurt didn't bother her. It was pain with the future. She glanced past the scarist's bare scalp, through the grimy window, holding her eyes open around the prickle of tears. Behind the rain, she could pick out the jeweled running lamps of a massive space lighter sliding through the clouds, coming in soft toward the waterlogged sprawl of a spaceport named for Lake Pontchartrain. On a clear night, she could have seen its train of cargo capsules streaming in harness behind. Patience bit her lip and looked away, not down at the needle, but across at a wall, shaggy with peeled paint. Lake Pontchartrain was only a name now, a salt-clotted estuary of the rising gulf, but it persisted, like the hot, bright colors of bougainvillea grown in wooden washpails beside doors, like the Mardi Gras floats that now floated for real. In the memory of New Orleanians, as grand a legacy as anything the underwater city could claim. Patience's hand lay open on the wooden chair, as if waiting for a gift. 
She didn't look down, and she didn't close her eyes as the needle pattered and scratched, pattered and scratched. The long Poplar Street barge undulated under the tread of feet moving past the scarists, but his fingers were steady as a gin-soaked frontier doctor's. The prick and shift of the needles stopped, and the pock-faced scarist sat back on his heels. He set his tools aside and made a practice job of applying the quickseal. Patience looked down at her hands, at the palm-fretted indigo to mark her cast, at the filigree of emerald and crimson across the back of her right hand, and under the transparent sealant swathing the last two fingers of her left. A peculiar tightness blossomed under her breastbone. She started to raise her left hand and press it to her chest to ease the tension, stopped herself just in time, and laid the hand back on the chair. She pushed herself up with her right hand only and said, Thank you. She gave the scarist a handful of cash chits once he'd stripped his gloves and her blood away. His hands were the silt color he'd been born with, marking him a tradesman. The holographic slips of poly she paid with glittered like fish scales against his skin. Won't be too long for you'll have the whole hand done. He rubbed a palm across his sweat-slick scalp. He had tattoos of his own, starting at the wrists. Dragons and mermaids and manatees, arms and chests tesserade in oceanic beasts. You've earned two fingers in six months. You must be studying all the time. I want my kid to go to trade school so we can get births outbound, Patience said, meeting the scarist's eyes so squarely that he looked down and pocketed his hands behind the coins, like pelicans after fish. I don't want him to have to sell his indenture to survive like I did. She smiled. I tell him he should study engineering, be a professional, get the green and red, or maintenance tech, keep his hands clean, like yours. He wants to be an artist, though. Not much call for painters up there. The scarist grunted, putting his tools away. There's more to life than lighters and cargo haulers, you know. Her sweeping gesture took in the little room and the rainy window. The pressure in her chest tightened, a trap squeezing her heart, holding her in place, pinned. Like this? He shrugged, looked up, considered. Sure, like this. I'm a free man, I do what I like. He paused. Your kid any good? As an artist? A frown pulled the corner of her lip down. Consciously, she smoothed her hand open so she wouldn't squeeze and blur her new tattoos. Real good. No reason he can't do it as a hobby, right? Good or good? Blood scorched her cheeks. Real good. The scarist paused. She'd known him for years. Six fingers and a thumb. Seven examinations passed. Three more left. If he keeps his hands clean, when you finish the cast gesture at her hands. If he still doesn't want to go, send him to me. It's not that he doesn't want to go. He just doesn't want to work, to sacrifice. She paused, helpless. Got any kids? He laughed, shaking his head as good as a yes, and they shared a lingering look. He glanced down first when it got uncomfortable, and Patience nodded and brushed past on the way out the door. Rain beaded on her nano-skin as it shifted to repel the precipitation, and she paused on decking. Patchy-coated rats scurried around her as she watched a lighter and train lay itself into the lake, gently as an autumn leaf. 
She leaned out over the Poplar Street Canal as the lights taxied into their berth. The train's wake lapped gently at the segmented kilometers-long barge, lifting and dropping Poplar Street under Patience's feet. Cloying rain and sweat adhered her hair to the nape of her neck. Browning rue and sharp pepper cut the reek of filthy water. She squeezed the railing with her uninjured hand and watched another train ascend, the blossom of fear in her chest finally easing. Javier Alexander, she muttered, crossing a swaying bridge. You had best be home safe in bed, my boy. You'd best be home in bed. A city like drowned New Orleans, you don't just walk away from. A city like drowned New Orleans, you fly away from, if you can. And if you can't, you make something that can. J.V. lay back in a puddle of blood-warm rain and seawater in the borrowed dinghy and watched the belly lights of another big train drift overhead, hull silhouetted against the city-lit, salmon-colored clouds like a string of pearls. He almost reached up a pale-skinned hand. It seemed close enough to touch. The rain parted to either side like curtains, leaving him dry for the instant when the wind from the train's fans tossed him, and came together again behind as unmarked as the sea. Beautiful, he whispered. Fucking beautiful, mad. You in there, J.V.? A whisper in his ear, stutter and crack of static. They couldn't afford good equipment, or anything not stolen or jerry-built. But who gave a damn? Who gave a damn when you could get that close to a starship? The last one went over my fucking head now. Are you in? Over the buoys! Shit! Brace! J.V. slammed hands and feet against the hull of the rowboat as Mad spluttered and coughed. The train's wake hit him, picked the dinghy up and shook it like a dog shaking a dish rag. Slimed old wood scraped his palms. The cross brace gouged an oozing slice across his scalp and salt water stung the blood from the wound. The contents of the net bag laced to his belt slammed him in the gut. He groaned and clung. Strain burned his thighs and triceps. He was still in the dinghy when it came back down. He clutched his net bag, half-panicked touch racing over the surface of the insulated tins within, until he was certain the wetness he felt was rain and not the gooey ooze of etchant. Sure, mostly because the skin on his hands stayed cool instead of sloughing to hang in shreds. Matt, can you hear me? A long, gut-tightening silence, then mad wretched like he'd swallowed seawater. Alive, he said. Shit, that boy put his boat down a bit harder than he had to, didn't he? Just a tad. J.V. pushed his bag aside and unshipped the oars, putting his back into the motion as they bit water. Maybe it's his first run. Come on, Mad, let's go brand this bitch. Patience dawdled along her way stalling in open-fronted shops while she caught up her marketing, hoping to outweigh the rain and the worry gnawing her belly. Fish-scaled chits dripped from her multicolored fingers and from those of other indentured laborers, some, like her, buying off their contracts and passing exams, and others with indigo-stained paws and no ambition, and the clean hands of the tradesmen who crowded the bazaar, the coins fell into the hinnid palms of shopkeepers and merchants who walked with the rolling gait of sailors, 
The streets underfoot echoed the hollow sound of their footsteps between the planking and the water. Dikes and levees had failed. There's just too much water in that part of the world to wall away, and there's nothing under the Big Easy to sink a piling into that would be big enough to hang a building from. But you don't just walk away from a place that holds the grip on the human imagination New Orleans does. So they'd simply floated the city in pieces and let the Gulf of Mexico roll underneath. <laughs> simply. The lighters and their trains came and went into Lake Pontchartrain, vessels too huge to land on dry earth. They sucked brackish fluid through hungry belly mouths between their running lights and fractioned it into hydrogen and oxygen, salt and trace elements and clean potable water. They dropped one train of containers and picked up another. They taxied to sea, took to the sky, and did it all over again. Sometimes they hired technicians and tradesmen. They didn't hire labor-cast, dole-cast, palm-stained indigo as those of old-time denim textile workers or criminals with their hands stained black. They didn't take artists. Patients stood under an awning, watching the clever moth-eaten rats ply their trade through the market, her nanoskin wicking sweat off her flesh. The lamps of another lighter came over. She was cradling her painful hand, close to her chest, the straps of her weighted net bag biting livid channels in her right wrist. She'd stalled as long as possible. "'That boy had better be in bed,' she said to no one in particular. She turned and headed home. Javier's bed lay empty, his sheets wet with the rain drifting in the open window. She grasped the sash in her right hand and tugged it down awkwardly. The apartment building she lived in was hundreds of years old. She'd just straightened the curtains when her telescreen buzzed. J.V. crouched under the incredible curve of the lighter's hull, both palms flat against its centimeters-thick layer of crystalline sealant. It hummed against his palms, the deep surge of pumps like a heartbeat filling its reservoirs. J.V. crouched under the incredible curve of the lighter's hull, both palms flat against its centimeters-thick layer of crystalline sealant. It hummed against his palms, the deep surge of pumps like a heartbeat filling its reservoirs. The shadow of the hull hid J.V.'s outline and the silhouette of his primitive watercraft from the bustle of tinders peeling cargo strings off the lighter stern. Mad, can you hear me? Static crackle and his friend's voice on a low thrill of excitement. I hear you. Are you in? Yeah, I'm going to start burning her. Keep an eye out for the harbor patrol. You're doing my tag, too. Have I ever let you down, Matt? Don't worry. I'll tag it for both of us, and you can burn the next one and tag it from both. Just think how many people are going to see this all over the galaxy. Better than a gallery opening. Silence, and J.V. knew Matt was lying in the bilgewater of his own dinghy just beyond the thin line of runway lights that J.V. glimpsed through the rain, watching for the harbor police. The rain was going to be a problem. J.V. would have to pitch the bubble against the lighter side. It would block his sight lines and make him easier to spot, which meant trusting Mad's eyes to be sharp through the rain. And the etchant would stink up the inside. He'd have to dial the bubble to maximum porosity if he didn't want to melt his eyes. No choice. The art had to happen. The art was going to fly.
Black Nano unfolded over and around him, the edge of the hiker's bubble sealing itself against the hull. The steady patter of rain on his hair and shoulders stopped, as it had when the ship drifted over, and J.V. started to squeegee the hull dry. He'd have to work in sections. It would take longer. Mad, you out there? Coast clear! Why did you tell your mom to get her to let you out tonight? I didn't. He chewed the inside of his cheek as he worked. I could have told her I was painting at Claudette's, but Mom says there's no future in it, and she might have gone by to check. So I just snuck out. She won't be home for hours. J.V. slipped a technician's headband around his temples and switched the pin light on, making sure the goggles were sealed to his skin. At least the bubble would block the glow. While digging in his net bag, he pinched his fingers between two tins and stifled a yelp. Bilgewater sloshed around his ankles, creeping under his nanoskin faster than the skin could reosmose it. The night hung against him, hot and sweaty as a giant hand. Heedless, heart racing, J.V. extracted the first bottle of etchant, pierced the seal with an adjustable nozzle, and, grinning like a bat, pressurized the tin. Leaning as far back as he could without tearing the bubble or capsizing his dinghy, J.V. examined the sparkling virgin surface of the spaceship and began to spray. The etchant eroded crystalline sealant, staining the corroded surface in green, orange, violet. It only took a few moments for the chemicals to scar the ship's integument, not enough to harm it, but enough to mark it forever— unless the core that owned it was willing to pay to have the whole damn lighter peeled down and resealed. J.V. moved the bubble four times, etchant fumes searing his flesh, collar of his nanoskin pulled over his mouth and nose to breathe through. He worked around the beaded rows of running lights, turning them into the scales on the sea serpent's belly, the glints on its fangs. A burst of static came over the crappy uplink once, but Mad said nothing, so J.V. kept on smoothly, despite the sway of the dinghy under his feet and the hiss of the tenders. When he finished, the sea monster stretched fifteen meters along the hull of the lighter, and six meters high, a riot of sensuality and prismatic colors. He signed it, J.V. in Mad and pitched the last empty bottle into Ling Ponchatrain, where it sank without a trace. Mad? No answer. J.V.'s bubble lit from the outside with the glare of a hundred lights. His stomach kicked, and he scrabbled for the dinghy's magnetic clamps to kick it free, but an amplified voice advised him to drop the tent and wait with his hands in view. Shit, mad? he whispered through a tightening throat. A cop's voice rang over the fuzzy connection. "'Just come out, kid,' she said tiredly. "'Your friend's in custody. "'It's only a vandalism charge so far. "'Just come on out.'" When they released Javier to patience in the harsh light and tile of the police barge, she squeezed his hand so tight that blood broke through the sealant over his fresh black tattoos. He winced and tugged his hands away, but she clenched harder, her own scabs cracking. She meant to hiss— to screech, but her voice wouldn't shape words, and he wouldn't look her in the eye. She threw his hands down and turned away, steel decking rolling under her feet as a wave hit. She steadied herself with a lifetime's habit. Javier swept along in her wake. Jesus, she said, 
when the doors scrolled open and the cold light of morning hit her across the eyes. Javier, what the hell were you thinking? What the hell? She stopped and leaned against the railing, fingers tight on steel. Pain tangled her left arm to the elbow. Out on the lake, a lighter drifted backwards from its berth, refueled and full of water, coming about on a stately arc as the tenders rushed to bring its outbound containers into line. Javier watched the lighter curve across the lake. Something green and crimson sparkled on its hide above the waterline, a long, sinuous curve of color, shimmering with scales and wise with watchful eyes. Look at that, he said. The running lamps work just right. It looks like it's wriggling away, squirming itself up into the sky like a dragon should. What does that matter? She looked down at his hands, at the ink singeing his fingers. You'll amount to nothing. Patience braced against the wake, but Javier turned to get a better look. Never was any chance of that, Mom. Javier, I... A stabbing sensation drew her eyes down. She stared as the dark blood staining her hands smeared the red-beaded railing and dripped into the estuary. She'd been picking her scabs, destroying the symmetry of the scarist's lines. You could have been something, she said, as the belly of the ship finished lifting from the lake, pointed into a sunrise concealed behind gray clouds. You ain't going nowhere now. Javier came beside her and touched her with a bandaged hand. She didn't turn to look at the hurt in his eyes. Man, he whispered in deep satisfaction, craning his neck as his creation swung into the sky. Just think of all the people who are going to see that. Would you just look at that baby go? There you go, don't forget. All copyright is Elizabeth Bears. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Or Bear, as you know what I mean? That's that's how she likes to be called. Thank you so much. And Amy, you've been there from the I guess the start, to be quite honest, you know what I mean? You're on a kind of the bedrock of Starship Sova helping to kind of get where where we are. Thank you so much. What I what I want to do is just kind of give you an example of how this anthology has been put together. Dee contacted me on the 27th. I've kind of just checked by there. And I think in his email, 50 words laying out his idea, you know what I mean, in this pulp magazine. And like I say, this is all Dee's kind of work in getting this kind of book together in the style and, you know, the kind of layout and contacting, you know, because it's not just the writers there. He's, Dee's kind of contacting loads of like, or a number of artists. You know, I got in touch with Skeet. And kind of laid it on the line. Skeet, do you want to you have a go? <laughs> so on the 27th, and now the 16th, this show comes out on the 16th of September. Do you know what I mean? And it's all been put together twice. <laughs> you know, like I say, we we'll had to do two versions of it in them kind of two weeks or just over two weeks. And I dropped, you know, I dropped an email just, just about a few hours ago and said, you know, Dee, it's kind of over now. You know what? That's it. it. And it is a quite a strange feeling. Do you know what I mean? It's been so intense. And not like a, a, a nasty intense, just like a, a kind of pure, for me anyways, <laughs> might not have been for T or Josh. To get it done, you know, I've just really enjoyed it. But it has been a constant, you know, like 
stream of emails and everything going on. Totally, you know, I've, I've found the role of editor totally mind-boggling, you know, kind of the, the different, you know, everything you've got to sort out, you know. And I don't mean I physically doing the kind of layout. That's not, you know, I'll kind of push that to one side and hope D gets it done. But just contacting D, you know, just making sure then Josh with the website and then, you know, just getting things proofed and... It's been a, a you know a little bit of a kind of roller coaster ride, and especially like you see, within nearly three weeks of being in touch with D. Now I'm going to give you the list. You know, and this is especially true with kind of Google Google Mail. If you look at your emails in there, there's like send one to Starship over, and I might have communicated back with you. You'll have a little brackets with a number two in. You know, you sent me one, I sent you one. So and it tells you you know how many times you've communicated with each other. Me and Dee have communicated within those three weeks on a number of times. <laughs> we have one email which was sent, or one communication batch of emails, three times. So D sent me one, I sent him one, D sent me one. Then we've got one, another email, or st- string of emails, if you can once for a better word, where there was eight communications. Then another one of eight communications. Then there's one of nine communications. Then 11 communications, then another 11 communications, 13 communications, 20, 27, 60. Things are hotting up, getting nearer the date. 86, 89, 100. That's proofreading. 445 times I've supported D email. Works out nearly 27 emails a friggin' day, man. I haven't spoke to me wife that much or me kids that much. Do you know what I mean? It is just like I say. And then that's just, that's D. Then I've had Josh because I've been doing all the kind of website work with Josh. Then all the, the authors getting their, you know, and getting their kind of bio sorted out and pictures sorted out. Rather strange. Next story, I think. It is The Thought War by Paul McCauley. And it's narrated by MCL Studios, who, as you might as someone might remember, it is Martin. Martin, who's done some great narrations of Cage Baker stories as well. So, Starship Sofa's Oral Delights is very proud to present Paul McCauley and The Thought War. Listen. Try to speak. Don't try to move. Listen to me. And listen to my story. Everyone remembers the first time. The first time they saw a zombie and knew it for what it was. But my first time was one of the first times ever. It was so early in the invasion, I wasn't sure what was happening. So early, we didn't yet call them zombies. It was in the churchyard of St Pancras Old Church in the fabulous long-lost city of London. Oh, it's still there, more or less. It's one of the few big cities that didn't get hit in the last crazy days of global spasm. But it's lost to us now because it belongs to them. Anyway, St Pancras Old Church was one of the oldest sites of Christian worship in Europe. There'd been a church there in one form or another for one and a half thousand years, and although the railway lines to St Pancras Station ran hard by its north side, 
It was an isolated and slightly spooky place, full of history and romance. Mary Wollenscroft Godwin was buried there, and it was at her graveside that her daughter, who later wrote Frankenstein, first confessed her love to the poet Shelley and he to her. In his first career as an architect's assistant, the novelist Tom Hardy supervised the removal of bodies when the railway was run through part of the churchyard and set some of the displaced gravestones around an ash tree that was later named after him. I lived nearby. I was a freelance science journalist then, and I was working at home, and the weather was good, and I often ate my lunch in the churchyard. And that's where I was when I saw my first zombie. I can see that you don't understand much of this. It's all right. You're young. Things had changed already when you were born, and much that was known then is unknowable now. But I'm trying to set a mood, an emotional tone, because it's how you respond to the mood and the emotions of my story that's important. That's why you have to listen carefully. That's why you're gagged and bound and wired to my machines. Listen. It was a hot day in June in that ancient and hallowed ground. I was sitting on a bench in the sun-dappled shade of Hardy's ash tree and eating an egg and cress sandwich and thinking about the article I was writing on Cosmic Rays when I saw him. Well, he looked like a man anyway. A ragged man in a long raincoat. Black raincoat, ropey hair down around his face as he limped towards me with a slow and stiff gait. Halting and raising his head and looking all around and then shambling on, the tail of his black coat dragging behind. I didn't pay much attention to him at first. I thought he was a vagrant. We're all of us vagrants now, but in the long ago, most of us had homes and families and only the most unfortunate slaves to drink or drugs, lost souls brought down by misfortune or madness, lived on the streets. Vagrants were drawn to churchyards by the quietness and sense of ancient sanctuary. And there was a hospital at the west end of the churchyard of Old St Pancras where they went to fill their prescriptions and get treatment for illness or injury. So he wasn't an unusual sight, shambling beneath the trees in a slow and wavering march past Mary Gopin's grave towards Hardy's ash in the little church. And then a dog began to bark... A woman with several dogs on leads and several more trotting freely called to the little wired-haired terrier that was dancing around the vagrant in a fury of excitement. Two more dogs ran up to him and began to bark too, their coats bristling and ears laid flat. I saw the vagrant stop and shake back the ropes from his face and look all around, and for the first time I saw his face. It was dead white and broken, like a vase shattered and madly mended. My first thought was he'd been in a bad accident, something involving glass or industrial acids. Then I saw that what I had thought were ropes of matted hair were writhing with slow and awful independence like the tentacles of a sea creature. I saw that the tattered raincoat wasn't a garment, It was his skin, falling stiff and black around him like the wings of a bat. The dog woman started screaming. 
She had a clear look at the vagrant, too. Her dogs pranced and howled and whined and barked. I was on my feet, and so were a handful of other people who'd been spending a lazy lunch hour in the warm and shady churchyard. One of them must have had the presence of mind to call the police, because almost at once, or so it seemed, there was a wail of a siren and a prickle of blue lights beyond the churchyard fence, and two policemen in yellow stab vests came running. They stopped as soon as they saw this vagrant. One talked into the radio clip to his vest. The other began to round everybody up and lead us to the edge of the churchyard. And all the while the vagrant stood in the centre of the seething circle of maddened dogs, looking about, clubbed hands held out in a gesture of supplication. A hole yawned redly in his broken white face and shaped hoarse and wordless sounds of distress. More police came. The road outside the churchyard was blocked off. A helicopter clattered above the tops of the trees. Men in hazmat suits entered the park. One of them carried a rifle. By this time, everyone who'd been in the park was penned against a police van. The police wouldn't answer our questions, and we were speculating in a fairly calm and English way about terrorism. That was the great fear in the long ago. Ordinary men moving among us, armed with explosives and hateful certainty. We all started when we heard the first shot. The chorus of barks doubled and redoubled. A dog ran pell-mell out of the churchyard gate and a marksman shot it there in the road and the woman, who still had the leashes of several dogs, cried out. The men in hazmat suits separated us and made us walk one by one through a shower frame they'd assembled on the pavement and made us climb one by one in our wet and stinking clothes into cages in the backs of police vans. I was in quarantine for a hundred days. When I was released, the world had changed forever. I had watched it change on TV and now I was out in it. Soldiers everywhere on the streets, security checks and sirens are a constant low-level dread. Lynch mobs, public hangings and burnings, ten or twenty menacings in London alone each and every day. Quarantined areas cleared and barricaded, invaders everywhere. By now, everyone was calling them zombies. We knew they weren't around dead, come back to walk the earth, of course, but that's what they mostly looked like. More and more of them were appearing at random everywhere in the world, and they were growing more and more like us. The first zombies had only been approximations, barely human in appearance, with a brain and lungs and a heart, but very little else by way of internal organs, only slabs of muscle that stored enough electrical energy to keep them alive for a day or so. But they were changing, evolving, adapting. After only a hundred days, they were almost human. The first had seemed monstrous and pitiful. Now they looked like dead men working. Animated showroom dummies. Almost human, but not quite. After I was released from quarantine, I went back to my trade, interviewing scientists about the invasion, writing articles. There were dozens of theories, but no real evidence to support any of them. The most popular was that we'd been targeted for invasion by aliens from some far star. 
that the zombies were like the robot probes we had dispatched to other planets and moons in the solar system, growing ever more sophisticated as they sent back information to the controllers. It made a kind of sense. Although it didn't explain why, although they had plainly identified us as the dominant species, their controllers didn't try to contact us. Experiments of varying degrees of cruelty showed that the zombies were intelligent and self-aware, yet they ignored us unless we tried to harm or kill them. Otherwise, they simply walked amongst us, and no matter how many were detected and destroyed, there were always more of them. The most unsettling news came from an old and distinguished physicist, a Nobel laureate, who told me that certain of the fundamental physical constants seemed to be slowly and continuously changing. He had been trying to convey the urgent importance of this to the government, but as I discovered when I tried to use my contacts to bring his findings to the attention of ministers and members of parliament and civil servants, the government was too busy dealing with the invasion and the consequences of the invasion. There was an old and hopeful lie that the alien invasion would cause the nations of Earth to set aside their differences and unite against a common enemy. It didn't happen. Instead, global paranoia and suspicion ratcheted up daily. The zombies were archetypal invaders from within. Hatreds and prejudices that once had been cloaked in diplomatic evasions were now nakedly expressed. Several countries used the invasion as an excuse to attack troublesome minorities or to accuse old enemies of complicity with the zombies. There were genocidal massacres and brushfire wars across the globe. Iran attacked Iraq and Israel with nuclear weapons, and what was left of Israel wiped out the capital cities of its neighbors. India attacked Pakistan. China and Russia fought along their long border. The United States invaded Cuba and Venezuela, tried to close its borders with Canada and Mexico and took sides with China against Russia, and so on and so on. The zombies didn't have to do anything to destroy us. We were tearing ourselves apart. We grew weaker as we fought each other and the zombies grew stronger by default. In Britain, everyone under 30 was called up for service in the armed forces. And then everyone under 40 was called up too. Three years after my first encounter, I found myself in a troop ship at the tail end of a convoy, wallowing through the Bay of Biscay towards the Mediterranean. Huge columns of zombies were straggling out of the Sahara Desert. We were supposed to stop them. Slaughter them. But as we approached the Straits of Gibraltar, someone, it was never clear who, dropped a string of nuclear bombs on zombies massing in Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt and Libya. On our ships, we saw the flashes of bombs light the horizon. An hour later, we were attacked by the remnants of the Libyan and Egyptian air forces. Half of our fleet was sunk the rest limped home. Britain's government was still intact, more or less, but everyone was in the armed forces now, defending ourselves from the zombies and from waves of increasingly desperate refugees from the continent. 
There was a year without summer. Snow in July. Crops failed and despite rationing, millions died of starvation and cold. There were biblical plagues of insects and all the old sicknesses came back. And still the zombies kept appearing. They looked entirely human now. But it was easy to tell what they were because they weren't starving or haunted or mad. We kept killing them and they kept coming. They took our cities from us and we fled into the countryside and regrouped and they came after us and we broke into smaller groups until they came after us again. We tore ourselves apart trying to destroy them. Yet we still didn't understand them. We didn't know where they were coming from, what they were, what they wanted. We grew weaker as they grew stronger. Do you understand me? I think you do. Your pulse rate and pupil dilation and skin conductivity all show peaks at the key points of my story. That's good. That means you might be human. Listen, let me tell you what the distinguished old physicist told me. Let me tell you about the observer effect and Boltzmann brains. In the 19th century, the Austrian physicist Ludwig Boltzmann developed the idea that the universe could have arisen from a random thermal fluctuation, like a flame popping into existence, an explosion from nowhere. Much later, other physicists suggested that similar random fluctuations could give rise to anything imaginable, including conscious entities in any shape or form. Boltzmann brains. It was one of those contra-intuitive and mostly theoretical ideas that helped cosmologists shape their models of the universe and how we fit into it. It helped to explain why the universe was hospitable to the inhabitants of an undistinguished planet of an average star in a not very special galaxy in a group of a million such, and that group of galaxies one of millions more. We are typical, ordinary, and because we are ordinary, our universe is ordinary too. Because there's no objective reality beyond that which we observe. Because, according to quantum entanglement, pairs of particles share information about each other's quantum states even when distance and timing means that no signal can pass between them. Because observation is not passive. Because our measurements influence the fundamental laws of the universe. They create reality. But suppose other observers outnumbered us. What would happen then? The probability of even one Boltzmann brain appearing in the 14 billion years of the universe's history is vanishingly small. But perhaps something changed the local quantum field and made it more hospitable to them. Perhaps the density of our own consciousness attracted them as the mass of a star changes the gravitation field and attracts passing comets. Or perhaps the inhabitants of another universe are interfering with our universe. 
Perhaps the zombies are their avatars, Boltzmann brains that pop out of the energy field and change our universe to suit their masters simply because they think differently and see things differently. This was what the old physicist told me in the long ago. He had evidence too. Simple experiments that measured slow and continuous changes in the position of the absorption lines of calcium and helium and hydrogen in the sun's spectrum, in the standards of mass and distance and in the speed of light. He believed that the fundamental fabric of the universe was being altered by the presence of the zombies and that those changes were reaching back into the past and forward into the future, just like a pebble dropped into a pond will send ripples out to either side. Every time he checked the historical records of the positions of those absorption lines, they agreed with his contemporaneous measurements, even though those measurements were continually changing. We are no longer what we once were, but we are not aware of having changed because our memories have been changed too. Do you see why this story is so important? It's not just a matter of my survival, or even the survival of the human species. It's a matter of the survival of the entire known universe. The zombies have already taken so much from us. The few spies and scouts who have successfully mingled with them and escaped to tell the tale say that they are demolishing and rebuilding our cities. Day and night they ebb and flow through the streets in tidal masses like army ants or swarming bees under the flickering auroras of strange energies. They are as unknowable to us as we are to them. Listen. This is still our world. That it is still comprehensible to us, that we can still survive in it, suggests that the zombies have not yet won an outright victory. It suggests that the tide can be turned. We have become vagrants scattered across the face of the earth, and now we must come together and go forward together. But the zombies have become so much like us that we can't trust any stranger. We can't trust someone like you who stumbled out of the wilderness into our sanctuary. That's why you must endure this test. Like mantids or spiders, we must stage fearful courtship rituals before we can accept strangers as our own. I want you to survive this. I really do. There are not many of us left, and you are young. You can have many children, many little observers. Listen, this world can be ours again. It's been many years since the war, and its old beauty is returning. Now that civilization's been shattered, it's become like Eden again. Tell me, is a world as wild and clean and beautiful as this not worth saving? Was the sky never so green, or the grass never so blue? So, thank you very much, Paul McCauley and MCL Studios. Fantastic. So halfway through getting this anthology put together, it's it just it, it came apparent to me that we needed some sort of kind of nice launch pad, you know what I mean? This I could kind of do everything what we're doing, but it needed its own kind of home and its own website. And 
you know, I just, I thought, and as soon as the penny dropped, you know, I says, you know, and Josh has been instrumental in getting the forums, keeping the forums, you know, I was going to lose them. It was as simple as that. And, you know, you're talking about a load of kind of people's conversations and people's history was just going to get wiped when the old website was going to, you know, the flick, the switch was going to get flicked. Josh stepped up and Josh's knowledge on, you know, everything kind of WordPress and keeping things together and just doing things, you know, I'm actually getting them to do a load more things, do you know what I mean? Which is, you know, a load more work. And he's, bless him, he's never once, you know what I mean? He's just always, oh, yeah, Tony will sort that out, don't worry about, you know what I mean? And just, he just, I kind of give him the kind of the plan. I said, oh, this is what we're doing. There's an anthology. Would, I need a kind of website, you know, I need a few pages on it. Would you be, Again, don't don't worry. It, well, I can sort that out. You know what I mean? It's sort it out as if it's just asking for a bag of sweets of him. And he's come up with this website, and it's just like fantastic. Do you know what I mean? So pop over there and have a look. And again, it's like with D. You know the communications. It's just been backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. It's you know Josh will get Tony there. Oh, that's the layout there. What do you think? You know what I mean? And then it's like, oh Josh, that's fantastic. Could you just chip? Could you just? Could you just? You know, that's always you can hear from me. Could you just do that? Could you just do this? So the website is, it's great. Go there because there is the kind of the free version as well. And I kind of forgot to mention at the beginning of the show as well. There is a free ebook version PDF. You know what I mean? You can go to the website. You can go click on the free book, and you can actually just look at it on the website there now. You know what I mean? There's that kind of issue dot coms little bit of a widget in there, and it kind of turns the pages or flicks the pages over. So that's there, and you know, like you say you can you can download it, or please by all means go and buy the book. You know what I mean? There is a page for the writers, so you know it tells you all the, the bios are there from the writers, but there's also the pictures and the images there of them, and the same with the illustrators. That's there, you know, kind of what they and it's it's fascinating just because the illustrators are all kind of you know, and I, I know me science fiction, so they're kind of like friends almost, you know, the kind of writers, but the illustrators are all new guys on the block and I've never kind of met any of them or I don't even know. I know Skeet and that's it. So it's been nice to kind of get to know their work and check out their website. So there's links there to all that. Then there is the kind of the buy the book and you go there and like you say, there's the two versions. You'll be introduced to the two versions. The deluxe, click on it, it'll take you through to, it takes you actually through to the Lulu page and then the same with the 899 paperback one. It takes you over there. So, like I say, what can I say about that site? It's And there's like a little, what Josh has done is just like, he's made like one of the graphics or one of the icons you click on, like a 3D book. Do you know what I mean? It's got the cover on, but it's tilted to the side so you can see the pages. Fantastic. So a big hearty thank you to Josh. Do you know what I mean? Please, anyone who wants a website designed or wants anything tweaking like that or sorting out with a website, Get in touch with us and I'll put you in touch with Josh. Do you know what I mean? I cannot vouch enough for his stand of his work. You know what I mean? What a true professional, an amazing guy. Next up is a little bit of fantasy here. We have Feast or Famine by Naomi Novik. I put a link on to Naomi's site. It is narrated by our good friend Peter Seaton Clark. Peter, if you remember, he's done a, a few narrations for Starships over now. He runs, he's got his own kind of voiceover business of stimmer.com which is actually based in central germany and this is providing you know voice talents for many different corporate and entertainment clients 
Says he lives in Germany with his lovely wife and his two rather high maintenance children. That's fantastic. And I've gotten some more work off Peter, you know, already. I've gotten this fantastic story by him, which came from Jeff Van der Meer's collection of short stories, Bass Ships, Black Sails. So do look out for that coming soon as well. So Starship Sofa and her Oral's Lights again is very proud to present. Feast or Famine by Naomi Novik. Temeray yawned and opened his eyes. Much of the leaf cover was already gone, and the early morning sun had fallen upon the end of his tail. The sensation of increasing warmth had woken him, and he was very conscious of the emptiness of his stomach. He lifted his head. None of his crew were about. He hated to wake them. It was still very early, and the patrol yesterday had been a long one. Aloft from eleven in the morning until seven in the evening, so they had eaten their dinner cold in mid-air and gotten to their beds late. He sat up on his haunches and fanned out his wings, rolling them back a little, enjoying the pleasant crackle of his shoulder joints. Morning dew spilled down the translucent folds and off his black scales. The air was sharp on his tongue, full of the salt air from the ocean. He considered for a moment going to take some fish for breakfast, but he recollected himself in time. He would certainly give a fright to the Dover fishermen if he were to begin hunting in their harbour, and he could not go further afield. They had formation work this morning. A fresh sheep would be just as nice, more pleasant even, on such a cold morning. Or maybe a cow. Decision and action were one. He was aloft at once, flying low over the trees of the covert to the common feeding grounds. But he landed and found that the herdsmen were not there yet, still asleep undoubtedly, with less excuse than his crew. The doomed cattle and sheep showed no inclination to submit to their eventual fate. They had retreated to the covered shed within their enclosure and were staying there, lowing unhappily. Temeraire considered them with some perplexity. There was not enough room in the pen itself for him to land and pull one of the animals out, and while he could knock down the fence easily enough, he was quite sure that would not be appropriate, silly though it seemed to him. He was entitled to the king's sheep, but not to the fence that was in the way. Perfectly absurd. Still, he would not for the world distress Lawrence by behaving badly. As always, the thought of his captain woke a secret glow of deep, proprietary satisfaction. He spared a moment to rub his nose over the great pearl and sapphire pendant which he wore, Lawrence's gift. The thick flapping of wings drew his head up again. Maximus, coming for his own breakfast. The enormous regal copper thumped down next to him, a cascade of dying leaves showered down from the trees around the borders of the clearing. Are those lazy buggers not here yet? he inquired, peering down at the enclosure. I will complain to Barclay. This is the third time we have had to wait. Yes, I know, Tamaraire said. Lawrence tells me it's difficult to get good servants for the covert, especially for the feeding grounds. They are too afraid of us. He sighed, and they sat together contemplating the animals, who had fallen wholly silent now, in terror. I suppose if we set up enough of a bellows, someone will take notice, 
Maximus said after a moment. Perfectly correct so far as it went, his full roar would likely have been heard in London. I do not want to disturb everyone after yesterday, Tamaria said. It is a pity the herdsmen do not sleep hereabouts. I'd be quite happy to wake only them. He considered. Perhaps we might open the gate ourselves. I do not see how without hands, Maximus said. I'm not even quite sure how they do it themselves. He drew back his head and peered at the gate with one eye. He was badly far-sighted and could not easily make out so small an object. It cannot be very difficult, Temeraire said thoughtfully. It takes them hardly the work of a moment to get it open. However, his cautious attempts to push on the gate or tug it open merely made the entire fence lean alarmingly. The gate section did rattle separately, but did not open. Temeraire put his head down close to it and narrowed his eyes as best he could. There were so very many small pieces to it. I think perhaps that bar keeps it shut. A sheep barred uneasily. Maximus managed to squeeze the tip of a claw between the bar and the wood, but when he tugged, the iron bands around it made an unpleasant loud squealing noise that made both dragons draw back their heads in distaste. Now it must come off some other way, Temeraire said. He thought, looking more closely, that it seemed to rest within a pair of braces that had no tops. He put the tips of his foreclaws beneath it and tried raising it. The bar lifted easily. In another moment he had it up and discarded, and the gate swung open. They reached in for their prizes. Before they knew what was happening, the animals had bolted, and Temeraire and Maximus were standing by an empty pen, each clutching a cow, while the entire herd of cows and sheep went pelting away across the field and into the trees, crying out in mad terror. Oh, Temeraire said. Hmm, Maximus said. His mouth was full. He finished the cow in three bites, belched, and licked the blood from his claws. Now what? Perhaps we could herd the animals back into the pen, Temeraire said. He bit the head off his own cow and crunched it. They cannot have gone very far. They do not have wings after all, and they are quite small. I do not mind trying, Maximus said. I am still hungry. It was extraordinary how far cows could run in only a short time. Temeraire dropped panting on the ground of the clearing to rest. It was not so much the distance, but they kept changing directions and then many of them would go scattering in the wrong way and requiring chasing afresh. At least they were finally beginning to be exhausted and to allow themselves to be herded closer. Maximus landed with another two sheep in his foreclaws, set one down inside the pen, limp, if not dead, with terror, and ate the other. Perhaps we ought to just wake the others and tell them they'll have to catch their own breakfast, he said, crunching away. Breakfast? This question came in hopeful tones. Little Volley, the courier, landed beside them. He had heard the noise and come looking. Now he gazed about inquisitively. Cow! he squealed, seeing one loose, and immediately leapt after it. The animals began bellowing and ran away all over again. It's not really our fault, 
Maximus said when they were once again alone, Volley and the animals already far distant. The herders ought to have been here. Temeray closed his eyes and hid his head beneath his wing, curling his tail around himself. He hardly imagined how he was going to face Lawrence. To add to his misery, Exidium landed, asking, Where are the animals? Temeraire made a muffled noise and curled up smaller. Exidium was the oldest of the dragons at the covert, a long wing, close on a hundred years old, scarred from many battles. He was very impressive, and led the largest formation of the covert. It was painfully embarrassing to be exposed so before him. We opened the gate and they ran away, Maximus admitted, and now we cannot get them back in again. Exidium said, sounding puzzled, You open the gate? But it does not look broken. It is not broken at all, Temeraire said indignantly, raising his head at this. We were very careful. It works perfectly still. He rose and lifted the bar with a couple of talons to demonstrate. Now that he understood the basic principle, it was perfectly simple. Exidium watched him curiously, then imitated it. Why, that is neatly done, he said, when he had satisfied himself that he could do it also. I have never particularly paid attention. I was always sure it could not be done by a dragon. My claws are too big, Maximus said sadly, after he took his turn. He did not have quite enough control, being so large, and could not lift the bar without digging into the wood of the fence and nearly uprooting the whole thing. Wait, I have an idea. Temeraire padded over to the edge of the clearing and sat up, breaking a branch off one of the trees. Taking it in his teeth, he brought it back and put the end of it beneath the bar. There! Now you lift it, and the bar will come up as well. Maximus looked dubious, but snorted with pleasure when it worked. That is all very well. However, now I would like something to eat, and there is none, Exidium said. He had no compunction about waking anyone. He sat back on his haunches and roared out at once. Heads popped up all over the covert. The smaller dragons flying up to see over the trees, the dragons of Exidium's formation had naturally recognised his voice. All aloft! We have some herding to do! he called out, having gotten their attention. Do not look so miserable! he told Temeraire kindly. Someone lets the animals loose at least once a year, although usually they smash the pen. We will have them back soon enough. It takes a larger number of us, and knowing the trick of it... Where away? West-northwest, Maximus said, pointing with his nose in the direction where the herd had gone. An exidium took to the air, followed by the dragons of his formation. I'm glad it's not just us, Maximus added, after the others were gone. Yes, Temeraire said in heartfelt agreement. Exidium's apparent approval had comforted him. And at least we didn't smash anything. He was already forming his explanation to Lawrence in his head and considering a new idea. I wonder if we might have forced a cow out of the shed with a branch, he said thoughtfully. Maximus huffed in amusement. We have got into enough trouble for one day, he said and we have formation work in an hour or so, I am going to go and take a nap. 
he reached into the pen and took out his second sheep, eating it even as he flew off. Temeraire followed more slowly, returning to his own clearing. Now that the excitement was over, he also felt the need of a rest. But there was no reason, he thought, curling up to sleep, that mechanisms might not be made dragon size. Something like the rig the crew occasionally used to lift the heaviest combat armor onto his back, with pulley and tackle, would be quite handy. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Naomi's. Peter, thank you so much. What a great and so short notice as well. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. So next up, the the anthology is coming together. Do you know what I mean? We've had the kind of the book, the price structure. You know, the website's kind of done. The image, do you know what I mean? And I've got, like I say, I've got to take my hat off the skeet. You know, he's had like, in a, I'm not joking, like a lot of work. And everyone has, mind you, do you know what I mean? It's just like, I kind of forget some names, do you know what I mean? But he has had a lot of kind of work to, to do to kind of get this sorted out. You know, actually putting all the, you know, the work aside, even just the kind of the work he does for Starship Sober, it's you know what I mean? It's tremendous. And even just putting the fonts on, the kind of the main images that come through once a month is tremendous. Do you know what I mean? But what can I say, Skeet? Skeet was brief, was, you know, make it 50s pulp. That was it. That's all you had to go on. And I've got to admit, I was stunned when I first seen it. Do you know what I mean? It was just like this image come back, and it was just exactly God's truth. Well, actually, I said spaceships. That was, you know, that was just said spaceships and girls. That's what I <laughs> That's what I see. Ronnie Reagan again. Skeet went. I'm so glad he did. Went away and did his own thing and made it in this kind of 50s pulp thing. And it just come back perfect. And then what's actually great was give it a D and D kind of just made it look really totally 50s pulp. You know, that logo rocket on, on the front. That's going to be now, I'm, I'm sure, my main logo do you know what i mean i'm gonna get t-shirts with them put on there it's gonna be on everywhere do you know what i mean i love that little rocket and then he kind of made it just look like i say this 50s pulp style and inside that's the kind of the whole running order is down with this kind of pulpy fin look you know this it is kind of it's a total homage do you know what i mean like i say i mentioned in the beginning of the show it's this kind of 50 or this golden age second coming but it's totally paying homage to that era of science fiction. Just the, and it's that era that kind of makes me excited. Do you know what I mean? And even that, just looking at the pictures, you know, of them, that kind of style of like science fiction, I don't think there's anything better. And that's the kind of, that's the look D suggested. And that's the look that just straight away I wanted. And that's the look we've got. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, thanks to Skeet. He just pulled it off something not right. You know, thank you so much, Skeet. Next up is a little tinker of a story by Terry Bisson. It is Billy in Dinosaur City, and it's narrated by our good friend Gareth Stack. As soon as I heard Gareth narrate the first Billy story by Terry, I had to go straight to him and say, Terry, is there any chance I can get that another one? And he's got a collection out of this this Billy collection, you know what I mean? So please pop over to his website. So Starship Sova is very proud to present Billy in Dinosaur City. Pack up your toys, said Billy's father. 
We are moving to Dinosaur City. Oh, boy, said Billy. Oh, no, said Billy's mother. She didn't like dinosaurs. It was a long way to Dinosaur City. As soon as they got there, a dinosaur stepped on the car. Oh, no, said Billy's mother. It was all squashed. We don't need a car anymore, said Billy's father. We can ride on a dinosaur. Oh, boy, said Billy. They all got on. I like this new house, said Billy. It was bigger than the old one. It was newer than the old one. And it was all green. It is too green, said Billy's mother. You shut up, said Billy's father. Everything is green here. Billy's room was green. Billy put his toys away and sat on the bed. There was nothing to do. Go out and play, said Billy's mother. I don't have any friends, said Billy. You never did have any friends, said Billy's father. What else is new? You can make friends with the dinosaurs, said Billy's mother. She was trying to make the best of things. What if they don't like me, asked Billy. You sound like your mother, said Billy's father. It's too pretty to play inside said Billy's mother. She was always saying that. Billy went out to play with the dinosaurs, but they didn't know how to play. They were way too big. All they did was stomp on things. They tried to stomp on Billy, but he stepped aside just in time. Finally, it was supper time. Make any friends? asked Billy's father. No, said Billy. I thought not, said Billy's father. Eat your turkey, said Billy's mother. This doesn't taste like turkey, said Billy. It's too green. That does it, said Billy's mother. I want to go home. Shut up, both of you, said Billy's father. He was trying to read his paper. The next day, Billy went to dinosaur school. It was horrible. Even the teacher was a dinosaur. There weren't any chairs. The dinosaurs never sat down. They just stomped around. At recess, Billy tried to make friends. My name is Billy, he said. So what? said the dinosaurs. They didn't have names. They tried to stomp on him, and he stepped aside just in time. Billy was glad when school was out. He walked home alone. He had to be careful because of the dinosaurs. I hate school said Billy.
when he got home. You always hated school, said Billy's father. What else is new? Try to learn some dinosaur games, said Billy's mother. She was trying to make the best of things. They don't play games, said Billy. They just stomp on things. Let's go for a ride, said Billy's father. He folded up his newspaper. They went for a ride around Dinosaur City. They rode in a little green wagon. There was nothing much to see. All the houses were just alike. There was a dinosaur in each one. They were all sleeping. Dinosaurs sleep a lot. Careful not to wake them up, said Billy's father. They can be mean when they just wake up. They're always mean, said Billy. I want to go home, said Billy's mother. Shut up, both of you, said Billy's father. Billy hated Dinosaur City. He played like he was sick so he wouldn't have to go to school. He waited till his mother wasn't looking and stole a dollar from her purse. He went to the store to buy a magazine. Billy liked magazines. Is this all the magazines you have? Billy asked the store owner. They were all about dinosaurs. What's wrong with dinosaurs? Asked the store owner. He was a dinosaur, too. Nothing, said Billy. It's just that I'm interested in other things. Try this one, said the store owner. It was called Meteor Magazine. Where did you get that magazine? Asked Billy's father. They were having supper. It fell from the sky, said Billy. Billy's father looked at the cover. That makes sense, he said. Eat your Brussels sprouts, said Billy's mother. That night, Billy read his magazine. It was pretty stupid. I'll bet the dinosaurs will like it, he thought. The next day... Billy took his magazine to school. At recess, he showed it to the dinosaurs. He was trying to make friends. This was to be his last attempt. Meteors are just big rocks, said the dinosaurs. Big rocks in outer space, Billy pointed out. Outer space is stupid, said the dinosaurs. They stomped on his magazine and tore it up. Billy started to cry. Now you have to stay after school, 
said the teacher. For what? Billy asked. For being a cry baby, she said. Dinosaurs don't cry at recess. I'm not a dinosaur, Billy said. I'm just a little boy. That does it, she said. Now you are expelled. For what? Billy asked. For talking back, she said. What is expelled? Billy asked. It means you have to go home. Oh, boy, said Billy. Billy walked home alone. He hated dinosaur school. He hated dinosaur city. He heard stomping and looked around. A dinosaur was chasing him. Wait, it said. It was waving a piece of paper. Billy waited. It was too late to run anyway. Here's what was left of your magazine, said the dinosaur. It was only one page. I feel sorry for you. Really, said Billy. No one had ever felt sorry for him before. Really? said the dinosaur. I guess all dinosaurs aren't bad, said Billy. Would you like to be my friend? No, said the dinosaur. I just want to feel sorry for you. Then it went away. Billy took what was left of his magazine home. It was only one page. It was filled with little ads. One ad was for a meteor call. It cost one dollar. Billy stole a dollar from his mother's purse and sent for it. He stole a stamp too. He waited till she wasn't looking. How's school? asked Billy's mother. They were having supper. Okay, said Billy. Get a load of this, said Billy's father. He was reading the newspaper. Boy expelled from dinosaur school. It wasn't me, said Billy. Nobody said it was, said Billy's father. Pass the Brussels sprouts. Aren't you going to school? asked Billy's mother. It was the next morning. Of course, said Billy, but he was just pretending. Instead, he hid under the house. There was nothing to do. Then the mail came. It was his meteor call. Billy had forgotten all about it. It looked like a whistle, except it was big. It came with instructions. Wait till parents are asleep. Take to top of roof or hill. Point up at sky and blow. Billy 
waited until his parents were asleep. Then he took the meteor call to the top of Dinosaur Hill. It was the highest one around. He pointed the meteor call up at the sky and blew. It made a big, loud hooting noise. All the lights in Dinosaur City came on. Uh-oh, said Billy. Now he was in trouble. Just then, a huge meteor came shooting down from outer space. It almost hit Billy, but he stepped aside just in time. Instead, it hit Dinosaur City and squashed all the houses. Almost. Cool, said Billy. He ran down the hill and looked around. There was a dead dinosaur in each house. But wait, one dinosaur was still alive, just barely. It was the one that had felt sorry for Billy. It was bleeding all over. Dinosaur blood is green. It was writhing in agony. I feel sorry for you, said Billy. Then he ran home and went to bed. Luckily, his house was the only one that was not squashed. His parents were still asleep. Get a load of this, said Billy's father. It was the next day. He was reading the newspaper. Dinosaurs extinct! Meteor tragedy squashes all. What's extinct? said Billy. It's like expelled, said Billy's father. They won't be around any more. I am so glad, said Billy's mother. Now we can move back home again. Pack up your toys, said Billy's father. Oh, boy, said Billy. He packed up his toys. But I feel sorry for the dinosaurs. And he did, but only a little. Them stories are just a pure little joy, pure droplets of gold in science fiction terms. I just love them. And Gareth's, you know what I mean? Things Gareth does in his bedroom when he's audio, you know what I mean? And when he's narrating, you don't need to know. But whatever happens, they come out looking like, or sounding like that. And that is a fantastic narration. So finally, oh, thoughts on... Starship Sova's Stories, Volume 2. What can I say? Do you know what I mean? This has just ignited the flame in me that's kind of kicked off and it's away. And obviously, we're not going to leave it too late this time. We're not going to do it in two weeks. But, you know, and send us emails. Do you know what I mean? Let us know how you feel about it. You know, how kind of Volumes 1 went. And But what I, what I kind of want to do, say, with Volume 2, is make it bigger. You know, more content in. 
you know, and I know like it's diff- two different issues again, but maybe do more for the, the, the bigger issues, you know, like give us suggestions, you know what I mean? Like maybe stick little, like something with it. So you get an extra thing, maybe like a, a cover, like a bit of cover art, or I have no idea, but I want to put more work in and maybe stories that haven't actually been on, you know, narrated yet, or even ones that are going to get narrated in the future, you know? What I would like to do, and I, you know what I mean, I'm governed by people's help there, D, <laughs> calling on you. You know, it'd be nice every six months, you know, and build up a collection of Starship Sofas, or even a year, do you know what I mean? I'm easy which way. If I do it every six months, I'm just thinking of kind of the revenue that kind of keeps Starship Sofa going, do you know what I mean? It's, it's simple as that, do you know what I mean? But it would be nice to, to get a set of, you know, these books that come out, you know what I'm like for my collecting my kind of fantasy and science fiction masterworks. You know what I mean? That's the way I kind of look at it. And especially in this design, I certainly want to keep this kind of homage to the fifties narration, you know, fifties style science fiction going. That's certainly what I want to do. So let us know, you know, that's kind of my plan. I would like to do it every six months, whether that comes off, you know, or whether that's just too much for work, whether a year is, is the kind of the nice, niche, you know, like once a year. We'll wait and see. Do you know what I mean? We'll wait and see. Now, we're coming to the end of the show. And like I say, I'm so happy, you know, the anthology is up there. And please go out and support Starship Sova. Do you know what I mean? Get yourself whatever copy you want. It, that'll be that'll be just fantastic. You know, drop us an email. Tell us you've gotten a copy. You know, <laughs> Come and get in touch with us. I need communication, you know what I mean? Because I'm still sitting here by myself, you know, so... Please, and I mentioned, or I was what I was kind of. I was just kind of. I like in the forums just to kind of look, not really kind of get into the forums and talk myself or write myself on the discussions. I was just like to kind of step back a bit, but I'm always there reading. And there was actually Josh who designed the website said about Skeet's work. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a story? to go with actually the cover because the cover hasn't got its own story. You know, I just like to say, I gave Skeet the brief and that's the style we'll have. Larry Santuru must've been looking through the thing and wrote under Josh's comment. Oh, it's a good idea that I think I, I could probably do that. That was all I needed. That was all I needed. I just want to hand you over to Mr. Larry Santuru. Okay, Tony, here I am. I'm sitting in a coffee shop. I'm in Chicago's Loop. That's the downtown part of things. I'm trying to do this without fussing around too much. As Tony said, this is going to be warts and all, and the sound of the lunchtime city life as a leitmotif going on in the background all the time. Maybe not all the time, but for this time, yes. This is a progress report. Uh, it's a report, unfortunately, that can report, uh, I can report no real progress because I can't do that right now. Here's why. What I'm doing, I'm writing a story. This is a story suggested by the cover image for the Starship Sofa Stories, a book that's already gotten me in trouble over at Escape Pod for my having uh, publicly announced its existence, and what I gather now was the wrong page or forum or what the fuck. Anyway, my gaffe over there turned into a long string of people actually noticing the announcement and that the book, Lord Love It, will exist, and that I'm having a story in it, and then in the company of writers that one only dreams about being among in the wettest of dreams. All right, that's enough of this. 
I love the cover of the book, the Starship Sofa Stories. I love it so much that I mentioned as a reply to someone else's post that I thought I might like to write something sometime maybe based on that image, a gathering of Neanderthalic men gazing up at a female-ish robot-like thing emerging or living in or rising out of a plume of ice, rampant, upwelling ice. Or Okay, we've all seen it anyway. It's pretty neat. I love it. Uh, then... Tony sent me a note saying, did I mean it? Would I like to do a story? Would I write something in the next couple of weeks and we'd do a one-off book, get it in some format, sell it at auction or something, raise some money for Spider and Gene Robinson? Sure, I said. Sure, yeah. I did go through some agonies. It wasn't quite that simple. I, I, I've got a downhill rush going on in my novel right now, and I, I won't talk about that now, maybe later. Later in these reports, when I run out of things to say about this project, uh, I, I can never really talk about things I'm working on because, uh, well, anyway, I can't. If I do, it somehow degrades them. It somehow makes me feel like I'm in the middle of doing... Uh, shut up, Larry. I've got a lot of city of Chicago work right now piling up because, well, we're in a big city in the midst of a country that's in the midst of a recession we don't want to admit to. Not really, anyway. And we keep cutting people from the city payroll and keep promising that we'll still provide the same services that that we won't. No, we'll never raise taxes. No, no, not ever. Okay. Uh, That's enough of that. So the point is... Got a lot of work on the novel I've got to do. Got a lot of work at work that I've got to do. And that's enough warts for now, I guess. So I'm doing this story. I, I, I've, I've started it. I've stared at the picture. I've squinted. And I have a notion. The notion has emerged uh, as a result of watching an old British TV miniseries that I got hooked to since I've been trying to wean my wife, Cecilia, from her obsession with Robson Green. Uh, and, uh, oops. Okay. Uh, I had a little break there. I had some business I had to deal with. So, uh, back, I'm back to the story, the story, something hit me two days ago. I got an idea of what this thing could be about from, from this mini series that I'm watching. Just an image. It was a it was a scene. It had nothing to do with cavemen, not to do with robots. It's something else. It's 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 historic. It's nineteenth century. It's and it's about uh, no uh, no no. I'm not going to say. I, I I won't give specifics. Not yet. Hell. Anyway, I might change my mind. So the point is, I start. Yesterday, I did uh, seven hundred words. The words are clumsy. Yeah, they. Somewhere in there, I like the notions, and I, I like the characters. Well, at least I like the first character, the one that just popped into my head. He was a character from an old movie, uh, and I just used him as an image, and then went from there, and the guy changed, and he changed some more. And then I added another person, and then there was another one, and then, then, then there was a third person, the third person. She's the woman, the woman, as, as Sherlock Holmes has said of Irene Adler. And no, this is not a Sherlock Holmes thing, so get that out of your heads. Anyway, here we are today. In the midst of the uh, ongoing crisis that is my work life, I got another bunch of hundreds of words uh, worked up, and I'm now close to about 1,600 or a few more, maybe. Uh, it's not bad. So sometime tomorrow, 
some more. I'm planning on doing about 500 words a day for the next uh, two weeks or so. That should get me up to 8,000, 10,000 words. It's about where I want to be, and then I'll go through it. We'll cut. We'll pair. Uh, every time I cut a story, it seems like I add three or 4,000 words or another 5% or whatever to it. But anyway, tomorrow sometime I may get another five, six, seven hundred words, and I may figure out what this thing is actually about. Take it easy, Tony. Have fun with this. I'll talk to you later. That has got to happen. Do you know what I mean? That has got to be the best idea to kind of round up, to finish off this anthology, to get a story, to kind of write it first. You know, I'll write it after the image, after even the book's been out. Get that story done. We'll get it narrated. We'll pick the date, the 1st of December, or the first week in December, this story's going to become. And again, I'll give a little brief. Make it science fiction. Make it 50s pulp. Make it 8,000 words. <laughs> Larry, what have you let yourself in for? This is how it's going to tie in. This is what I kind of want to do with it, because Spider Robinson has been, like I say, so kind of Starship Sova. His wife, Jeannie, is going through, per- well, they all are. The whole family is going through personal hell. Jeannie has been diagnosed with a certain kind of cancer. And, you know what I mean, it's fighting back. And it's a it's a hard kind of tough road to, to go about. I lost my mother-in-law about two years ago to cancer. My mother-in-law was so close to me. Do you know what I mean? We we were into science fiction together. We went to see science fiction films together. We went to the theatre to see Shakespeare together. You know what I mean? I was so close to my mother-in-law and cancer took all that away. And I would love just, to, you know, this one chance to kind of, like I say, it, my mother-in-law's gone and I think about it all the time. But if I can do just a little bit of help for someone who's, you know, got this kind of horrible, horrible disease it would be just amazing do you know what I mean my intention is and I haven't actually asked D yet but I'm sure I'm more than happy I want to make one copy this is what I'm thinking please get in touch with us and you know few copies I want to get one this is my idea I want to get one copy and put Larry Santuru's story in that one copy and then put it up for sale for say 200 pound one copy and all that money will just go straight over to help Spider and Jeannie get over this. You know, and like I said, that is a drop in the ocean. But, you know, I just hope we all, you know, go over there and help, you know. And this is kind of the one way and one of the ways I can kind of do a little bit, you know what I mean? And like I say, this one book, put it up for, say, £200, you know, there will only be one copy of this book. It'll have a story in there. And it might not sell, do you know what I mean? I don't know, but it might. And if it does... That would be a fine thing. I'll send that money straight over to Spider Robinson. I mean, I think that would be a great thing what would happen. These are my dreams. Let us know. Do you know what I mean? If that's not the right thing to do, let us know. I'm kind of certainly open to suggestions. That is Oral Delights Show 100. A little bit different from the norm, but good reason. We have a fine book out. Please go check it out. There's a free version there, you know, downloaded. Pass it to as many people as you know. Get them interested in science fiction. Get them reading science fiction. The stories in there that'll blow your mind. Everyone, you have made this show what it is today, and I am so proud to talk to all of you. 
Do you know what I mean? And get to know a lot of yous. Please, if you haven't gotten in touch with us, say hello. Do you know what I mean? Suggest something. It could kick off like what? My intention is to get D, to get Josh and to get Skeet on and do a show and let's have a little kind of chat. And basically for me to say thank you to them. You know, so look out for that coming soon. Again, I am... You'll not see a happier guy walking out that door. When you walk out that door on the street, look for a tall fella. If he's got a smile on his face, it'll not be as big a smile as mine. I would just like to say, my heart goes out to all years. Thank you so, so much for making Starship Sova what it is. Until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.